Vulnerability is an incredibly powerful leadership tool. There's an amazing leader at Adobe. She talked about not getting a promotion earlier in her career and going on a shame spiral. That doesn't immediately strike you as like a leadership move, but she's an amazing leader in that she is strong enough to be able to be vulnerable and share the story to normalize what everyone's feeling. We're in this fast moving world. And part of it is just being vulnerable enough to say, hey, I failed too, I've been in your shoes. But on the other hand, I think kind of planting that flag, that inspiration, that purpose, holding a high bar and having just a gravitational pull towards, hey, this is what we're trying to work towards. You're listening to The Big Asian Energy Show, where every week we interview Asian experts, move makers, and ceiling breakers to uncover their secrets to success so we can help you reach your greatest potential. I'm your host, John Wang. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks, John. For those people in the audience who may not have heard of you, who are you and what do you do? So Eric Wong, I'm in Vancouver, British Columbia. So that's why I'm in in your apartment right now. (laughs) And I am head of leadership development at Adobe. PDFs, Photoshop. If you're a creative person, you probably heard of Adobe. I feel like if you're a person who lives in the year 2000s, you've heard of Adobe. Yes. What does that mean, development, like leadership development? What do you do? We have close to 30,000 employees and 5,000 of them are people managers. And one of the things that we believe at Adobe is that a lot of the work gets done through managers, right? People don't leave jobs, they leave their managers. Just looking across all the people who are managing, all the great work that's being done, products that are being built, salespeople that are being led, and what can we do to help these leaders be successful and be great managers, mm-hmm. and ultimately helping Adobe continue to be successful. Wow, and how did you come to in this role? Was there like a, a career path that led to this? Is this something you always wanted to do? It's funny, we're sitting on UBC campus right now, so I was a computer engineer. For me to be in people stuff is probably the furthest departure you can imagine (laughs) from a very technical, rigorous education. But I always had a fascination about people stuff. Coming out of engineering school, spent a couple years, managed a software development team at TELUS, headed off to business school, and afterwards spent my last 15 years in this world. Wow. So you went to engineering and then you worked for TELUS and then did you continue your education or? I ended up going to do my MBA at Stanford University. So I ended up heading down to California. It felt like a dream come true to get there, get accepted. And then that was in 2006. So coming out in 2008, I ended up going to a funnily named firm called BTS. That was before the Korean boy band BTS. <laughs> it was actually a Swedish consultancy, and I think they were birthed at a time when it was like IBM. It was really cool to have a very formal sounding yeah. letter name. I had job offers, I had five job offers coming out. The other four were at companies you've heard of, so telecommunications, Cisco, British Telecom, Singapore Telecom, eBay at the time too, oh, wow. which is a very successful company. But I wanted to choose the one company that put me in the ball game of people stuff. Because it was really hard to know, what does it actually mean if you're interested in psychology, interested in people dynamics? So Mm. BTS, what they did is they would build custom business simulations to train leaders. And so we're often serving chief learning officers, heads of leadership development, and we'd go in, try to create a business model of a company like ABC Television Group. How does... ABC make money, or into a tech company like VMware that was just booming at the time, we'd model out their strategy and then put a 26-year-old consultant in front of them to facilitate a conversation about, hey, this is our three-year strategy. Let's war game against each other, compete, put leaders through this experience facilitated by a young guy in front of the stage. And ultimately, that's how we would teach strategy. We'd teach sales. We'd teach leadership development, very much experiential learning, believing that adults learn through doing. That sounds really fun, actually. (laughs) It was cool. It was a very fun place to work. It sounds like you were really interested in people. And that's not usually the case for when I think engineers, especially people who went through the path that you did, going through computer engineering and then going to Stanford for MBA, and then you started developing an interest in people. 
Was that always something that was for you, that was important for you? It's so funny that I'm sitting here. It feels almost perfect. I'm staring at some of the buildings that I was programming doing all-nighters. And one of the things I realized is that I didn't love engineering. My dad was an engineer, my sister was an engineer, mm. and my classmates were like coding at night and loving it. And I was finding myself reading CEO biographies and reading Business Week. Interesting. And so for me, it started with an interest in business. I would read these CEO biographies, Jack Welch, the CEO of General yeah. Electric, Lou Gerstner, IBM. And the funny thing I started to realize is like that most of the stuff that keeps leaders up at night is around leadership and people stuff. It wasn't the technical stuff. I think if I go back earlier than that, where did that come from? I think it came from my mother. So she was our neighborhood pharmacist. She worked at London Drugs for almost 40 years. She would come home at night and just talk about the people stuff, the interesting dynamics, serving patients, coming in and dispensing drugs. But the things that we would talk about are, we had this customer and she was really mean, but I don't think it was about me. I think it was because she was actually on welfare, but she was dressed up and so I think that this woman was actually feeling a lot of shame about her situation and was taking it out on me. We'd have a lot of conversations in our house growing up with my mother, the neighborhood pharmacist, just talking about people stuff and just the fascination with psychology. Why do people act the way they do? Mm. And so I think that was maybe a seed that was planted in me, something I carried with me through my career. What was your background like? What was your father like? My father went to UBC. He was brilliant. His IQ was probably higher than me, higher than my sister. All three of us, my sister, my dad, and I went to UBC, computer electrical engineering. His math scores were all at 100. My <laughs> sisters were all about 90, and mine were all about 80. So I was <laughs> oh, the least intelligent. <laughs> my mother was a beautiful, independent woman, and at the time, picked my father. He's a very kind man, probably also because he's a genius. And it's, there's probably in that decision, wow. this belief is that is going to provide security. My dad really struggled in the business world. Very meek, an order taker, was so kind, so gentle. My friends all loved him, but he was not an assertive guy at all. And I think that he had some demons himself and later on in his life suffered from bipolar disorder and he struggled to hold down a job as his manic phases got worse and worse. I remember one time when I was in high school, I came into the cafeteria and there was a big crowd and my dad had skipped work and showed up in our cafeteria and there was a big crowd around him and people were laughing and there's oh, like a crazy old Chinese guy had made his way into the cafeteria. Oh my God. And I remember how horrified I was because that was the moment my world blew apart because I was trying to be the popular guy. Oh my God. And this was the last thing I wanted anybody to see. Jesus. Grabbed him by the arm, walked out of the cafeteria and I was just felt horrified and just brought him home, didn't talk about it. He was a kind, gentle guy. He was the photographer for our football games. He was just the kindest, gentlest guy. And I saw, despite having a high IQ, despite being a kind guy, despite following all the rules, I saw how much he suffered. I'm sorry to hear that. That must have been yeah. really tough to see. And then uh, there's another incident that happened again at uh, Urban Fair down in uh, Yaletown. Oh, wow. Okay. My mom got a call from uh, the police and uh, had to go get him. And again, this feeling of, oh, he's just this crazy Chinese guy. And yet I knew how brilliant he was. I think like maybe one of the reasons why I chose this path is you see how people can be so intelligent but at the end of the day like if you're not able to influence people get along with people fit in into this environment and you still it's hard to get anything done and yeah. so I also wonder whether or not my mother as like a as a pharmacist and always just observing people was still trying to figure out like how do I help this guy see like how great he is I don't think he ever believed it himself enough. It's such an important thing. We say the words, how important it is to believe in one another, that it almost sounds cliche and it almost loses meaning, but we don't realize how absolutely deeply essential it is that we believe in the capacity and ability and even the potential of one another.
In the last year of his life, the craziest thing happened is uh, started painting. An engineer, brilliant mathematician, started painting. And uh, he only completed two paintings. And uh, he's a great painter. And I wonder whether or not his entire life, he actually just wanted to paint and didn't want to like follow the academic route, right? And I wonder how much when you're contorting yourself to try to be somebody else, the toll that takes on your body and your mind. Because at a certain point, it's kind of like we're talking about, like we lose to fit in somewhere by contorting yourself, to fit in somewhere by mirroring yeah. others. We sacrifice a part of us in the process. Thank you for sharing that courage and vulnerability we're talking about, which is so fucking hard to do. Acknowledging that. I'm writing this book, Big Asian Energy, and part of it is me talking about my own past. Because I'm like, I gotta talk my own past. But growing up in an Asian family, and I struggle with that. <laughs> and I went to talk to my therapist about it. And my therapist was like, dude, like you're from a culture where keeping family secrets is a big part of the culture. Like we have a Chinese saying in Taiwanese, yeah. we have a Chinese saying is that like your, your family ugliness is not for showing to the outside. Exactly. And that's actually that's I'm terrified of just the feeling of being terrified of, oh my God, what if like aunts and uncles and my mother even hear this, the shame. Yeah. But I do think that is, I'd like to hear it obviously, but I think it is part of my story. And I think that why it's important is that contorting to other people's expectations, I think killed him. I think it killed him. I think it led to mental health issues. It led to heart issues. Maybe that's why I felt so drawn to like do something about it here. And so I think that having that story there feels like it could give more power and could inspire or just help other people. So I think there's that something there. When we think of what is an inspirational leader, who do we think of? That was the question that came up to my mind. was like, who do I think of when I think of an inspirational leader? And I think a lot of my friends would say things like Elon Musk, who's controversial yeah. right now. But Barack Obama. And I realized that all the names I came up with, none of them were Asian. So that's why I'm coming back to this question. Is as a pro in the leadership development game, top company, all this thing, what makes a good leader? The first thing that comes to mind, I think is related to your point, is you're not a leader if no one wants to follow you. Oh shit, okay. <laughs> There's all sorts of stuff. I can start feeling very confident talking about different theories and like, there's always hot topics. There's always like a phrase of the week. You're multiplying talent or like, first break all the rules. There's yeah. always a book. Well, yeah. I think it does come down to, do people want to follow you? That's a really, really obvious, but tough question. Because I just realized, as soon as you said this, I was like, shit, like I've always thought that leadership is the position defines the leader. You step into office, you get that VP title, congratulations, you're a leader, but it's actually not. You have to step into leadership first, embody yes. leadership. Damn, okay, so who do we wanna follow? Who do we wanna follow? I think, it's funny we're talking about these different authors and stuff, I think there's like a, a trend. I do think who we wanna follow, the answer to that is changing a bit, it's not changing a lot. And you talk about 80s, Jack Welch, 90s Lou Gerstner. I think there was a very hierarchical, authoritative point of view, like almost a military style leadership. Yeah. Jack Welch is like, you gotta cut the bottom 10% of your organization to build that muscle, continually improve, great. Then we started talking about things like, you're managing different functions, you rotate through, you have a general understanding of the business. Then we started talking about inspirational leadership. You talk about, look at someone like a Barack Obama, and just there's people yeah. that just like, what they're saying yeah. is really inspiring you. And I think now, a couple of things that come to mind is one is purpose. Can you plant a flag around a common purpose? I know you do a lot of work with young people. I think young people these days don't want to do a job for the sake of a job. It's not like, I'm going to go work for IBM or General Electric. They're going to rotate me around. I think people want to feel a sense of purpose. And the other thing is, I think vulnerability is an incredibly powerful leadership tool. There's an amazing leader at Adobe. She talked about not getting a promotion earlier in her career and going on a shame spiral. That doesn't immediately strike you as like a leadership move, but she's an amazing leader in that she is strong enough to be able to be vulnerable and share the story to normalize what everyone's feeling. We're in this fast moving world and part of it is just being vulnerable enough to say, hey, I failed too, I've been in your shoes, but 
On the other hand, I think kind of planting that flag, that inspiration, that purpose, holding a high bar and having just a gravitational pull towards, hey, this is what we're trying to work towards. I love that. Vulnerability. Because you're showing people that, look, there's an empathetic part of you, that there's connecting. There's, I understand you, I understand whatever you're going through. You have to I'm care not just, about your people. That's it. I'm not just throwing commands at you and telling you to follow me, because, like, who are you? We want to be but understood. What else? Because I'm not just going to yeah. come out and, like, trauma dump. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's not okay. Just the more My you mom can... never loved me. Yeah, the more you can follow hear. me. Come yeah. on. <laughs> it's, the, it's the vulnerability to the degree it serves the group. If it's normalizing the struggle that they're all facing, a lot of leadership is a paradox of that. Yeah. Like you have a high bar, yeah. you have a very inspirational purpose, but also just the best leaders, they make you feel like you're the only person in the room. Some of these leaders, they're like, you're leading a thousand plus people mm. and yet you're making me feel like you're not in a hurry, that you are accessible. I can grab you for lunch. And it's an art. They say Bill Clinton had that magic. It made you feel like you're the only person. So heard that, yeah. back to that care personally. But then also you got to have a really high bar. That's something that we're trying to improve performance. It's like you cannot lower your bar for performance. You have to hold that bar and not let go and not let it drop. But also, you know, you have human beings that are on a path and especially like, we just went through a pandemic. Oh, so man. like that vulnerability, nobody knew what was going on. Yeah. So I think that's a perfect example of if you can't connect to you as a human being and the fact that now we're all just in our basements on our computers <laughs> where we're used to being in person, it's really hard to follow someone that doesn't get it. So I heard vulnerability, I heard purpose, and I heard that willingness to connect and also hold a high bar at the same time. I remember a book I read a while back, I think it's called The Culture Code that talks about this, how like the coaches of these like NBA teams would like, really when you really broke down the ones who win, their magic is super high bar, insane yeah. amount of love. It's just like, I don't care. Like I care so much about you as a person and that vulnerability. And I gotta admit like myself growing up, I always thought leadership was speaking up, standing in front. I think we all connected over this. Student council president stuff, like student council. I think I was like, I was student council vice president. I joined a fraternity. I like was the vice president of the pledge class. I get the vibe that like you have a lot of that in your history. <laughs> Am I right? You know, stuff like that. For sure. I think my parents were immigrants from Hong Kong. I grew up in North Delta in a, just a more white, neighborhood and so very quickly you're like you start to observe and understand so who's getting cred here mm -hmm. like, what's the currency of credibility in mm -hmm. this environment and at that time growing up in high school in the 90s good at sports loud funny aggressive and uh, attractive to girls <laughs> it's like yeah. you know, you're pumping yeah. you testosterone pumping through you <laughs> and that in was school, like yeah. was the hierarchy of high school i think one of the things that I became good at was just what's the social hierarchy here and what do I need to do to succeed? And so I found myself just gravitating towards the most powerful person. And my best friend growing up, Brent Brainer, was the most powerful person. Right. 6'4, 220. He was a mix of the best qualities of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Matt Damon oh um, in how he looked. Middle linebacker, <laughs> recruited, played football here. Wow. Middle linebacker, tight end. Just a specimen of a human being. Just unshakable confidence on the front. Mm -hmm. And so I was his best friend. And I worked really hard to be like him. We went to Gator's gym and we lied about our age so we could work out. <laughs> I'm 15, he's 16. I skipped a grade, by the way. Get in, <laughs> minimum. And so we're just going to the gym. And then we're doing 40-yard dashes together. We would just spend ungodly amounts of money out of our allowance on creatine, even though it did nothing, <laughs> buy chicken and rice, and try to get strong and lift right. weights. We're timing our 40s, yeah. and it was all about winning the provincial championship. I was not that big, didn't have that big of an arm. I was our high school quarterback because wow. I knew that was the what I needed to do to get to the top of that pecking order. And mm -hmm. that was like seared in my brain. I think that experience was something that has shaped me to this day. It, you mentioned Delta. For people who don't know Delta, Delta is like the outskirts of Vancouver, like the Vancouver yeah. area. Delta in the 90s, I don't think there was a lot of Asian people back there. No, it's been changing. It's funny is if you actually look at the class picture, there's probably more Asians than I remember. What I mean by that is 
if you look at me and my friends, it was me and a bunch of taller white guys. I think the good athletes, the popular people, it was definitely dominated by white people. I would guess if I looked at my yearbook that maybe it's more than I remember, but I don't remember a lot of Asian people growing up because I gravitated towards the people that seemed to be popular and winning in that, in that jungle. As an immigrant, I can recall back in Ion time in high school that like acceptance and popularity wasn't just you want to have friends, you want to fit in, you want to belong, but it was like, it was almost evidence of your success. This is going to sound, you know, being accepted by white people and being successful among white people almost meant more than being accepted by Asian people and successful by other Asian people's standards. Totally. John, I'm not even sure how I feel about that because it worked for a decade. Right. So I then come here to UBC. My day job is I'm in computer engineering in a really intensive course. There was like a project integrated course. So during the day and some all-nighters, I remember one time I did 10 all-nighters in 14 days mm. on a team to build a robot to go around a track, right? Mm -hmm. So heavily academic. But in my head, what success felt was going to the parties, being popular, being the funniest guy, being the center of attention. Because wow. that's what I saw. And I remember we had this big party called like Arts County Fair. I remember someone telling me, it's like, you don't seem like an engineer. I would have thought you're in like arts or something like that, or like human kinetics. We have two classes <laughs> as a degree. Lots, lots of big bros in that yeah. one. Yeah, my friends in human kinetics, yeah. no, no hate there. But I yeah. remember feeling that felt like an accomplishment to me. I felt proud that people didn't think I was an engineer. And that's the weirdest thing, because I balance these two things, like very academically focused, but almost didn't want that to be my identity. I wanted my identity to be success as it was defined by the seemingly popular people who were in the spotlight. Why? The first word that comes to mind is fear. I don't know if it was a fear of mediocrity, a fear of not being accepted. Like I have a feeling it's almost like you can't mess this up. This is important. And looking back, it makes no sense. Like, what is there to be afraid of? But I think there is like a fear of getting kicked out of that and then not fitting in. Of like the cool kids. The cool kids. The yeah, cool kids. The ones at our county fair, the, the parties and stuff like that. So I then graduate, I go to work for TELUS. I was on this team leading a software development team and it was growing fast. So I was asked to go out to Toronto at 23, move out there and hire and manage a team of 22 year olds. Not so like more just because I stuck my hand up. I was suddenly a year out. It looked like I had a lot of like career success. But in Toronto, I was just like, again, like starting to go out to clubs with friends and trying to really, again, just don't even know why, but try to find success in that Toronto hierarchy. And then I get into Stanford Business School. I'm one of the youngest people accepted. I didn't grow up around anyone who went to these top schools. So again, I quickly look around and I'm like, there's all these investment bankers, there's these finance guys, these consultants. And to my relief, it's like, oh, they party hard. So I know how to do that. I think all the way through my mid-20s, it was like, okay, there is a fun, partying, social, you might be working hard underneath, but you hide that. That's how these seemingly successful people who went to schools like Yale and Harvard and Stanford and Brown, if that's how they're acting, I guess that's how I'm going to act. It's just such an interesting thing because you're talking about things that like feel successful. And I 100%, I get what you're talking about because it makes all sense. Like being an engineer, engineers get paid good money. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like going to Stanford, that's a top school. Like these are things that on its own are what a lot of people, most people I would even say, would define as being successful. But there's almost this deeper identity. Yes. I feel that even when I was growing up, and I, that's what I'm saying, it's like, resonate with that was that exact thing. It's, it's not, that's not enough. Cause that's expected. That's expected. And it's expected not just of me it's, or you, but like of us as being these, like we're supposed to be good at whatever these things, engineering, math, whatever it is. But the other thing, it felt more true. Yes, it definitely felt true to me. It served me really well. I think it's as I got older, toned that down a little bit. But there are still elements that shape me today that still serve me. I went to Adobe after over a decade in startups and small consulting firms. 
I had to understand, like, how does this place work? How do decisions actually get made? And so you actually build up the superpower in understanding, like, what are the rules of the game here? It's felt as a someone who played football, it's I liken it to then you got to play rugby. <laughs> and it's the same but different. Yeah. Like in football, you grab and yeah. you're just trying to dive forward with yeah. the ball and you think anytime you're trying to yeah. score. But then it's like, oh, wait, hold on a second. What? In rugby, they do this weird thing where you go down, you put the ball behind. <laughs> There's like, a, you're kicking it sometimes. Hold on a second. How does this sport work? Right. So that ability to just look, what are the rules of this game? I'm just going to figure it out. I'm going to go do it, I think, has served me. I think as you and I have talked about, there's some really real costs to contorting yourself to fit in. Belonging is the desire. What are the costs? You and I chatted about this. One of the moments that I remember, I'm at Stanford. It's an amazing group of people. There's maybe 350 students from 70 countries all around the world. Might have that number wrong, give or take, but it was a lot of different countries. And I remember there were a group of amazing Chinese people in our class. Maybe there was seven, eight, nine, I don't know, and different kinds of however you define Chinese. I had a roommate named Robbie Sheng. He lives in Shanghai now, he went back. And I remember feeling competitive with him for some reason, like mm. feeling, oh wait, here's another guy that seems to have figured this out, super successful guy, and being like, wait, there's only room for one of us here. And so even though we were friends, there's like a feeling of competitiveness and not actually thinking, how can we help each other out? I think another cost was a feeling of like, I don't fit in with these people. So in my fight to do everything I could to fit in with American view of success. I don't speak Chinese. I culturally did everything I could to be very American. And then I'm looking over and at this people and I remember feeling like I didn't fit in with them. I didn't understand them. It felt like we were from different cultures, me and other Chinese people. And I remember crying and I don't know why, but I think there's an effort to fit in. You lose something about yourself. And then when you lose something about yourself, it's hard to then be an inspirational leader. It's hard to be successful if you're not fully yourself. That vulnerability we're talking about, right? That's the ironic part. I can relate to that. We talked about one of the, the seven archetypes that I always write about, which is I, I see so often that we create are these patterns. And so much of this is about belonging. And I think a lot of times I get this question, which is like, John, why are you talking about Asian people? Like, you guys are fine. Asian people are fine. You don't have problems. You're basically white people or white adjacent or whatever it is. And the thing that I really think is the difference is exactly that. Like, you don't realize how hard we work to be white adjacent. Yes. Like, we earned that. It wasn't just that you guys accepted us. Like, we fought. And I saw my parents fight. I saw my friends fight. And it's invisible and it's quiet. And we never realized it was a fight. But we did. We blended in. We learned the language, we learned the culture. I fought with my parents to adopt this culture, to eat westernized food, to listen yes. to westernized music, because the idea was not just that we're here to assimilate, but that this was a better place. Yes. So why would I want to keep what I had before if this is a better place? I should give up that part of myself. Ironically, I think that's the biggest thing, is that like in fitting in, in seeking belonging, you said, like, how can be a chameleon and fit in by being like everyone else around you and still be you? By definition, doesn't make any sense. And especially when you have, my parents could have chosen to live in Richmond, which for your listeners is a very, very high Chinese population. My parents could have chosen to live more on the West side, but they actually intentionally wanted to live in North Delta because they thought that gave me a better chance of success to be able to fit in. Yep, I hear Where that. they didn't fully fit in. Yep this was to give me a better life. So why would I let my parents down and not follow through on that? Maybe a feeling of their sacrifice, but our kids are gonna make yeah. it in this new country. John, another thought that came to my mind was, I listened to a Malcolm Gladwell podcast and it talked about Sammy Davis Jr. I remember like a moment yeah. where I think he faced a lot of criticism for basically abandoning his blackness. And I think at the time it was a pretty big deal. He did what he could to fit in with the successful white stars. And there was a moment in that podcast that brought me to tears where he was at some sort of roast. And the type of jokes that the all white group made 
were horrific about him being black. And he just took it. He's got a smile on his face. Why that made me so sad is because I did the same thing. You make fun of yourself, right? You make jokes about, oh, we all look the same, like a math nerd. I'm smaller than you. I big white guys here, we go camping. I'm like, oh, I I don't know how to ride a motorbike. I don't know how to change the gears. Almost like I I was self-deprecating. I don't even know why. And maybe because so that they couldn't get me first. The feeling behind it is that if I say it, then it normalizes it. Exactly. It normalizes it. Because there's also part of it, just let's face it, we're all thinking it. But if I claim it first, then I have the power in that. Because then otherwise, if somebody else makes that joke first, now I'm being made fun of. But yes. if I make that joke first, I'm having that power position. You can't hurt me. I was hearing this, I was talking to somebody a while back, and he was describing how she, she was growing up She was originally with this group of Asian friends and then went from middle school to high school and he wanted to go hang out with the cool white kids. So he abandoned his group of friends, like literally was just like, I don't want to hang out with you guys anymore. You're not cool. I'm going to go hang out with the white kids. He found himself one day making a joke about the Asian kids. I remember seeing just like this realization of what he was doing. And dude, I got to say like my heart broke because I'm like, I know that feeling. I know that feeling. This is what I'm saying. It's like we can call it internal racism and call it whatever you want, but I see it as survival, the survival mechanism. And I'm like, I'm not trying to be dramatic about this. And I think this is something that a it's lot real. of times people get. It's like, oh, you're not being too dramatic. Like you're gonna go through real traumas, like of whatever it is. Our struggle is not the same as the racial struggles of I think a lot of other groups, but it's small over time and it goes deep. It takes a toll. Like a lot of some of your energy goes towards it. And like you said, I think that it's not even worth comparing. All that will do is divide us. Did I feel like I faced severe racism growing up? No, I didn't. But I also think that's true because I live in one of maybe five to eight cities in North America where you can feel like you're almost fully accepted. There's certain cities that, you know, here, Seattle, LA, like Honolulu, (laughs) Maybe New York, you're getting close to the end of the list in terms of the cities where you feel like you're likely to not have to face it. And you and I talked about this. I think we're in an interesting moment in time where there is something that's changing about the narrative. You're starting to see Asian male leads in Hollywood. It got normalized really quickly, which I'm so happy about. But before this last few years, it was a huge deal. It was never seen. Yes. We never saw Asian protagonists who were male, straight as a hero. Yes. And acting heroically. I think that's the thing. It's not just that they are in that role, but that they act decisively, powerfully. Like the leadership thing you're talking about. They're vulnerable. Yes. Because these are things that we don't usually associate with Asian American culture. We think of Asians as being oftentimes, I think it was AIM who did a study around this, were polished We really know, like, we're hardworking, we're polite and we're humble, but we don't, we're not very vulnerable. We're not very open. We're not very empathetic. Harvard Business School talked, did a study on this when they they measured the warmth and competence scale. Basically, they said that most people, when we're really looking to see if somebody's a leader or how we like somebody, we're only ever feeling on two things, which is competence. Are they good at, are they, like, capable, strong, whatever it is, smart, and then are they warm? And they take a look at different groups and they found that Asians were generally speaking listed as high competence, low warmth. Which I always thought was funny because I would not have guessed that because yeah. I'm like, Asians are like, it's just super hospitable. But I get it because here we cover up. Yes. We cover up, we put on a face. <laughs> Got our business face on. Yeah. I think all Asian American men know this, but seeing those heroes succeed means a lot to us. And I think for some of us, we don't even realize how much it means. Like, why was I so emotional when Jeremy Lin put up 38? Oh, dude. Why did I feel so proud when I watched a recent movie, Blue Bayou, and it was about an Asian protagonist? It wasn't about something like, oh, this guy's good at kung fu or... He's the smart guy. He was just the protagonist in a, just a great story. And then now you're starting to see it pile up like with beef, like crazy rich Asians, and it's coming fast right now. That means a lot to us. And when I was younger, it'd be like, 
You never see the Asian guy get the popular girl. <laughs> we got everything else. Got Valedictorian, yeah, yeah, yeah. might be her friend. Oh man. But it was like, for some reason that mattered. Exactly. And maybe it's because that was what felt like the pinnacle of power. But it's like, are you going to see an Asian male protagonist in just a straight up story where it's yeah. just that? And I think that's starting to happen right now, which makes me feel so proud. Yeah. But I think where we're at now is like, I've known, and I'm so grateful to have met you because once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. You see there are all these Asian men that have reached success in whatever it is, business, Hollywood, politics, like, and it almost feels like we're at this, at the end of this finish line and we're all looking at each other and we're like, wait, hey, like, you're okay, right? I'm okay, we're okay. What the hell just happened? And I think that's the moment we're at right now is where I actually think there's a lot of us who have achieved enough success, but What's the narrative to that shared experience we all have? Because it's a shared experience. There is something that we all went through that no one has given yet a name to that I've heard in popular media. But I think it's, hey, it's almost like, you're okay. You're okay. You can. It's safe, man. You belong. And you can speak up. I think if we believe that is an unlock to us becoming a leader. And I think that leadership, it's interesting because... Leadership is in some ways like the pinnacle of society and business and stuff like that. The Prime Minister of Canada, the President of the United States, the CEO of the company, mm -hmm. because I believe leaders can drive a lot of change in this world and make a positive mm -hmm. impact. And I think that if we're able to be vulnerable, like you said, mm -hmm. not be afraid of judgment of who we truly are, I think that's an unlock to Asian Americans reaching success. It, without having to sacrifice their authenticity and who they were and who they are. This is something that I've so deeply believe in is that being successful or being assertive and confident or being whatever that blank word is, does not mean being white. That's a big one. Why big Asian energy is because like it's embodying whoever it is that you are. I don't even care if like you identify as Asian. It's really about the authentic identification of who you are, not who you feel you have to be or should be. I think that's a really well articulated unlock that you talked about. I think there's a big unlock there. Look at the city that we live in. I moved back to Vancouver in 2019. My wife and I were doing well work-wise. We now had two daughters, a dog, and had reached some success and decided, let's come back home to Vancouver. Yeah. One of the ideas that I had was from 2008 for a decade, San Francisco Bay Area was an amazing world of opportunity. Companies were doing so well. Mm -hmm. Stock market was booming. Everybody was doing well in the San Francisco Bay Area if you're in technology or business. And my wife was in biotech at Genentech, which is a really successful company there. We reached success and we thought, originally thought, well, maybe we'll go back to Vancouver when we're 55. And then, you know, <laughs> let's make a lot of money, reach yeah. success, and then there's some sort of destination. And then we just asked ourselves, like, what feels right for us? I, I just think for us, like, we just had a feeling in our gut we wanted to come back home to Vancouver. For me personally, I felt like I've had the privilege of having gone to Stanford and working with a lot of successful companies. And so I had this idea, I was like, I can come back home to my little town of Vancouver, this little underdog city in the business world, and I'm going to come and bring some of that energy back, do something. Yeah. I went to a startup right before Adobe and joined a mentor. It was an amazing learning experience. Didn't work out. And then I was lost at 40. I was like, what am I going to do? The Bay Area has all these high paying jobs and I am now without a job with two <laughs> young kids. What am I going to do next? That's a scary place. Where I felt the most disappointed in myself is that the original idea is I'm going to come back to Vancouver, pair up with an old mentor, Josh Blair, amazing business leader. And I was going to be part of building this unicorn company in my town of Vancouver. We're going to go take over the world. And I ended up getting and feeling a little disillusioned. I'm just like, you know what, this business, Vancouver business environment, I actually found it a little bit insular and exclusive. Interesting. And I did, was not able to achieve what I wanted to. Mm. And so then now I'm stuck thinking like, I still think there's something I can do to help Vancouver. And when we started talking, I was like, it's been right in front of us the whole time. What does Vancouver have? <laughs> we have a ton of smart Asian people here. Yep. <laughs> and this university we're looking at right now is great, very great academic school. But how many of these young, smart Asian people, how many of these Asian people in Vancouver actually believe that they can go out there and change lives, change yeah. the world.
It's a good question. And maybe that's the reason we're talking today is maybe lending a hand back and maybe my experience can help somebody. So, do you see a lot of Asian people stepping into leadership? My world is just looking at largely American businesses. And I think about Southeast Asians. I don't have the stats, but it feels like there's a gap. And I do know that at Stanford, they run a class for Asian American kind of middle managers, senior managers, yeah, yeah. and this is a problem they address too. Something happens around, call it senior manager, director level, and they struggle to get into those senior leadership positions. So I don't see as much. So why? If I could just be as direct about it, just gut feeling, no one's gonna hold you accountable to this in the sense of we don't have to be care about stats or anything like that. Gut feeling, why? Why do we not see, because that's a good question. Why are we not seeing more Asian people step into that level of senior leadership? I know there's great Indian CEOs and I know there's different kind of issues and topics, but I can't think of that many East Asian CEOs that are out there. Not to say there's none, of course, yeah. there's tons, Zoom, there's so many yeah. East Asian CEOs, I'm sure, but Southeast East, they're rare and they're not loud. They're not championing. They're not like the way that you see a lot of CEOs. I think of Patagonia. I think of CEOs who are like, I believe mm. in something. Tom's shoes. I believe in something. I'm here. Yes. We're leading this company somewhere. Bill Gates, for all of his faults, he was a loud dude. Despite being, you wouldn't think of him as loud, but he was pretty loud. Steve Jobs? Like that inspiration, both of them had that inspirational, that vision, yeah. and people followed them. To get back to the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. Everyone has an opinion on Elon Musk. Love him or hate him, he stands in what he says and he says it loudly. Whether yes. or not he should is a debate, but he does. So why? It's a good question. We talk about this conversation we've been having and it's almost like this formula that we have to survive and thrive right. in this society. It certainly helps you get a safe job in that leverages your technical talent, but it's almost like a parallel railroad track, but it's not the path to leadership. There is something about that contorting yourself to fit in, to succeed mm. in someone else's world where leaders have to create the future. They have to create the That's world. That's a risky thing to do. This mm -hmm. is the thing. We're talking about Asian CEOs who are, I consider, out there and loud. I'm going to say this, Ellen Powell, who was once the CEO of Reddit, she wrote a book about her journey into it. And I genuinely think that she was trying to step into that and she got hit. Like she got hit and attacked. And that was planned or unplanned. That was what happened. So is there something within us that's we don't want to put ourselves in there? It is risky and scary. It is to really drive change, you're stepping in to be criticized, you're stepping into haters, you're gonna step into doubters, <laughs> and you can't do anything alone. So you need to be able to inspire others to follow you. How can you have people follow you when your entire life you've been following somebody else? Oh, interesting. So let's say we're talking right now to a young generation of Asians who didn't go through the things that we went through or didn't have to go through the same thing. They're going to face a whole different set of world issues. And they're looking at it right now and they're going, actually, no, I do want to be the next whatever CEO. I do want to be the next Elon. I do want to be the next whatever Steve or thing. What do I do? It's a great question. I think it's having the courage to step out of the safe lane. And it starts small. And I find that over time, you start taking these small risks and you start getting comfortable with the discomfort mm -hmm. and don't follow the well-worn path. You used to help young students get into top school. So you probably know way more than I do about <laughs> what's the formula, what are they looking for? I'm gonna do what they're looking for. But I think early on, just having the courage to go right when everybody's going left, take those risks, don't be afraid to know yourself, believe in yourself, to stay true to that. And then hopefully it becomes easier for next generations when there's less of a narrative that you have to be this way mm -hmm. to be successful. That's a great point. It's courage. Well, we're talking about media because I think that Asians and media right now are, we're going through this great wave. 
But really what the movies that I've been most interested in are stuff like Blue Bayou, stuff like Joyride. I don't know if you have seen it yet because they're willing to be messy. Yes. And I really like messy characters yeah. for Asian. I, I love it. For a while we had stereotypes. And then we, okay, we're done with the stereotypes. Not everyone's a kung fu fighting math dude. And then we started to have, there's still two-dimensional characters. There's still typecasted characters. And then we had shinier characters. But what I'm loving now is that we're getting into humans. Complex characters. Complex characters. You can't put them in a box. You can't. Like, beef. I love that. I love beef. Because it's just like, all the characters you're in, they're like, none of them are really archetypes. They're just all over the place. It is about saying... It's not about who do I have to be. It's just, no, you do you, and yeah. then you keep putting yourself out there uncomfortably. A lot of people may not like it. That's not your game. You're not trying to fit into that anymore. That's yeah. what I really admire about Ali Wong and uh, Steven Yoon. That's his name, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, the path to that sometimes requires that the people before you, or even early in your life, you got to sell out a little bit. It's almost like they're looking for a top 40 hit. You might have to deliver that top 40 hit before you create your amazing creative song. Look at Crazy Rich Asians. Like that was successful because it brought a lot of new faces into the world, but it played to what the masses wanted, right? Yeah. You know, I think about the Ken Jong, is that his name? Yeah. And it's that movie where they're the bachelor Hangover. party. Hangover. 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 He was a doctor, but he had to play the stereotypical, I'm going to laugh in this guy's face, Asian yeah. character. Yeah to earn him and hopefully others the right yeah, yeah. to open the door yeah. to yeah. have more mainstream roles so yeah. we can be fully ourselves. I, I want to shout this out because I know that there's been a lot of people who didn't like that, who didn't like his portrayal. And I'm like, you know what? I get it. I also have gone through it. He made small dick jokes and these kind of things. He was like on a community. But two things I really want to say is I think honestly needed to do that. Yeah, he did what he needed to do. In order for this generation to come out. And I think that we don't give Ken enough credit. We don't give, what was like Bobby? I don't remember his last name. Man, I'm failing my Asian test right now. <laughs> there was a little bit of pushback against those guys for their portrayals. Ken Jong was the one who like brought Simu Liu yes. to the marketplace. We don't give them credit for that. We had to fit in. We had to play the chameleon. And now the question is, what's the next generation gonna get and how do we support that? I think that's the key. That's the next generation of leaders. Whole new generation of leaders. And the shit that they're gonna come up with, man, I can't wait to see it. What advice would you give yourself if you had the time machine, go back in time, what advice would you have given yourself looking back? I don't have many regrets, but I think that one, when people ask me like, do you have any regrets or any advice? I sometimes speak to applicants or recent admits to Stanford Business School. And I wish that I had taken the time to build relationships with people who are more different than me. Interesting. Versus trying to build relationships with the people I was aspiring to be. Like this group of popular, kind of big personality, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. American guys. Yeah. And I went to school with classmates from all sorts of different countries. And I think it stemmed from that drive I felt to fit in, mm -hmm. right? To gravitate towards one group and then be blind to the other. So I think that a lot of these decisions I made were to try to fit in. So maybe I would just say, just, I would just ask myself, like, why are you doing this? And maybe reflected a little bit earlier on why. Why did I believe that I needed to, playing sports and being good at sports was the only way to feeling like success? Why did I believe that I had to drink in order for people to like me and to really fit in? So I just asked myself, why are you making these decisions? And what do you think the answer would have been for those wives? I think I probably would have said because I have to. Right. And it just, I think er, when you're earlier in your life, you're just in this drive to succeed and, and get yeah, to yeah. the top, whatever the top means. And there's a lot of good in that ambition, drive. Totally. Most successful people, like in their 20s, were working really hard and were pretty ambitious. So yeah. just be good at what you do, that, that's great. I feel lucky that I didn't fully lose myself in that process. It wobbles a little bit, yeah, but yeah. to be able to sit here and, and talk to you and uh, didn't wobble too much, but I think a lot of people do lose themselves and uh, you contort yourself too much and you actually lose power mm. even when you think you're gaining power. I like that. You're losing power even when you think you're gaining power. It's powerful. Coming back to leadership, 
because I still think that this is such a powerful and important question, is for Asian Americans or Canadians or whoever, for Asian people, we know why it is that we don't get perceived as being vulnerable. That's our culture. We're not always seen as being the assertive ones because again, it's our culture. We've been yeah. taught to be humble, be polite. We're not always the one raising our hands or anything like that. So how do we step more into leadership? If you are creating a coaching or training program for your development teams and they're Asian Americans or Asian Canadians, wherever it is, what would you focus on? What would that journey look like? I'm not an executive coach, but I do think that a lot of executive coaching, why it's exploded lately is this exploration of self. So I mm. think it always starts with yourself. Like when we've facilitated hundreds of leadership offsites and one of a very simple question is to ask, what is something about my past that shapes who I am today? Oh, that's a good one. Let the group talk. <laughs> and so I think that exploration of self, being able to understand why you are who you are and all the good and all the bad that comes from that, I think is, it creates a foundation. If you're able to explore yourself, understand yourself, there's just a level of comfort that I think we're all still working on. We're all still improving on this, but being able to truly understand yourself. Brene Brown had a really nice recent Netflix special. I think it's called Atlas of the Heart. You got to fact check oh. all of these things. <laughs> giving a language to some of these feelings. Huge. I think all of that becoming more mainstream is great. And yep. it doesn't just apply to Asians, but I think anybody, if you truly understand yourself for all the good stuff and all the bad stuff, and you learn to accept and love that, puts you in a position where you can inspire other people, you can help other people, you can do great things. Personally, I just think that this is the change that's gotta be happening. This is what I'm saying. Is that like messy Asians? Yes. That's the nature of innovation. Yes, is that messy character. We're perfectly yeah. fucking imperfect. We're perfectly imperfect in all the ways that we are, good or bad, because it's true to who we are. And the acceptance is that the imperfection of who we are is great, is worthy. We don't have to manicure and <laughs> pretend and put on a thing. Like the imperfections of who we are is what makes us leaders, is what makes us like that power to give us the ability to lead. Thank you, Eric, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. If people want to follow you or learn more about you, I don't know if you're going to create stuff in the future talking about this. What's the best way to find you? I think LinkedIn or Instagram. We'll put in the link in there, put it up there. So you can follow. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You've been a, an incredible guest sharing so courageously. Yeah. My pleasure, man. As Asian Americans, we are as strong as our collective community. So if there's something that you found valuable in this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media. And if you like the show, leave us a review and send us a screenshot and you might win some big Asian energy merch, which we give out every month. So you can go out there and own your big Asian energy. <laughs>